Uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn to uh, Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. We'll, uh, we'll get there in a moment. Um, yes, children can head out to children's ministry. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 14. We'll get there in a moment. Just two caveats as I, I, I uh, preach this morning's sermon. Uh, and the first is that the ancient image that we are going to look at, uh, it is virtually impossible to put into one sermon the extent of uh, the importance of this ancient image and just how important it is to our understanding of Jesus. Um, you could write not an entire sermon series on this, but uh, if I was more intelligent, I would actually be able to write an entire book just on the image that we're looking at this morning. It's that important, uh, and it's that uh, complex. So that's the first. Uh, the second is, I'm going to be preaching slightly differently this morning, and I'm going to be trying what's called a narrative sermon. Uh, there are many people, uh, many preachers who are very, very good narrative preachers. I'm not one of them, which is why I've never done it before. But um, the ancient image we're looking at this morning is a story that, that has a thread that runs right through Scripture. And so it's not an image that stands on its own. It's an image that is a part of a story. And so I thought it's just appropriate that uh, we... Do it as a narrative, as a story. Our series, of course, is, is called uh, Ancient Images, uh, prophetic pictures that point to Jesus. And in the series, we're looking at pictures and images in the Old Testament uh, that uh, point to Jesus in the New Testament. And last week, Pastor Matt did an exceptional job of breaking down why that's important and how those images uh, point to Jesus and what they tell us about Jesus. If you, if you missed it, or you were serving on, on, on some area, or you, you just please go online and listen. Uh, Pastor Matt did an incredible job. When it comes to these ancient images, some of them are easy to spot. They very clearly have a link to Jesus in the New Testament. Then there are some of these ancient images that are a little bit more hidden, a little camouflaged. We, we need to scratch around the surface to find them. And then there are those images that are completely mysterious. Those images that are, are baffling and intriguing and mystifying and perplexing and cloaked in mystery and surrounded by intrigue. There are those images that are just mysterious, mystical. And regarding this type of image, uh, the early church father, a man called Augustine, said the following. He said, the new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. So I want to quickly just double click on that for a, for a moment because, because that's important. Augustine says that there are some images in the Old Testament that are concealed. And so the big question is, why? Why would they be concealed? I mean, why are they hidden? Why are they cloaked in mystery? Why are they surrounded by intrigue? Like, God, why, why couldn't you just be clear? Why couldn't you just say, hey, this character points to Jesus in this way? Why not just be clear? A number of reasons. And the first of which is God is a mystery. God is cloaked in mystery, surrounded by intrigue. We know almost nothing about our universe how much less do we know of the creator of the universe? There is mystery surrounding God, and that's right. That's good. Jacob's, uh, Job's friend Zophar puts it this way. He says to Job, Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens above. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths below. What can you know? 
And because there are parts of God that are hidden, because there are aspects of God that are mysterious, because there are sides to God that are intriguing, it makes sense that faith, Christianity, and following God and following Jesus also have elements of mystery and intrigue, elements surrounded in mystery. It just makes sense, and that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. I think the one thing that as Christians that, that we, we, we sometimes get really, really wrong is that we feel we, we must always have an answer, as opposed to, to saying, this is a mystery that I don't fully understand. We should feel free to say that. And then secondly, uh, Jesus' Jesus's teaching was in a mysterious and enigmatic way. Matthew tells us that Jesus only spoke in parables. And why does he do this? He does this to separate the true seeker from those who are, are not really interested but are just listening. And funny enough, there was almost always the educated, the religious scholars, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the religious lawyers in Matthew uh, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, why parables? Just, just be clear, why parables? And Jesus responds saying, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. To those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given, and they will have an abundance of knowledge. But for those who are not listening... Even what little understanding they have will be taken away from them. That is why I use these parables. For they look, but they don't really see. They hear, but they don't really listen or understand. And then thirdly, it is through our trying to understand the mysteries of God that we grow in our faith. It is when we wrestle with difficult passages or concepts that, that we actually mature in our faith. Solomon gives this amazing analogy. He's, he's, Solomon says this. He says, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. One of the favorite parts of my week is a, is a Tuesday afternoon because uh, from two until three, there is, a, there is a Bible study that takes place in uh, the church boardroom. And uh, those in the Bible study don't know this, but, but, I, but, but I kind of stalk them. I, I, I sit in my chair and I push my chair back and I just I look at them and I can see them, but they can see me. And there's a reason that I do that. And the reason is this. It brings me incredible joy to see the faces of the people in that room. I look upon these faces and I can see that they're engaged. I can see that they're thinking. I can see that their minds are working. It's a beautiful, beautiful sight, even if I have to be a creep to see it. There are these ancient images that are clear, and there are those that are a little bit hidden, camouflaged. And then there are those ancient images that are just mysterious. They're puzzling. They're mystifying. They're perplexing. They're cloaked in mystery, and they're surrounded by intrigue. And of all the ancient images, of all the prophetic pictures, there is no one... And I state this categorically. There is no one more mysterious. There is no one more puzzling. There is no one more mystifying. There is no one more perplexing. There is no one more cloaked in mystery. There is no one more surrounded by intrigue than the mysterious figure of a man called Melchizedek. Of all the ancient people in the Bible and and. and I know I'm going to get pushback from this afterwards. You're going to say, you're an idiot. You're wrong. But, but this is what I believe. Of all the people in the Old Testament, David, 
Ruth, uh, Moses, Solomon, Deborah, Joseph, of all the ancient images, of all the ancient characters in the Old Testament, Melchizedek is by far the most important character. By far, by far, he is far more important than any of the other Old Testament characters that we have come to know and love this morning, I just want to, that's the goal of my sermon. If you walk away going, I want to know more about Melchizedek, I've accomplished my goal. That's all I want this morning is for you to leave here wanting to know more about this crazy, mysterious character, Melchizedek. But because so much of what we know about Melchizedek is shrouded in mystery, we actually have to become treasure hunters. We have to become sleuths. We have to become archaeologists, biblical detectives. In, in short, in order to understand Melchizedek, we have to become a form of Indiana Jones. It was the summer, summer of 1981. Um, it was about 40 degrees Celsius. The humidity was close to 100. And I was sitting in a theater called the Capitol Theater uh, in East London on the east coast of South Africa. And I watched for the first time uh, Indiana Jones, uh, the first installment, uh, the, the, the one about the Ark of the Covenant. And I immediately fell in love with this idea of, of needing to investigate more, to look for clues, uh, to see them everywhere. I became, it just, it became a passion of mine. I, I still, to this day, would love to spend some time on an archaeology dig, just digging and, and trying to find something that no one else has known. And in, in, in Indiana Jones, that's the premise. He, he is this archaeologist, this historian, and he looks for clues that point to other clues, that point to other clues, that point to other clues, that eventually point to a treasure, whether it's the Ark of the Covenant, or a crystal skull, or a gold cross, or the Dial of Destiny. The Indiana Jones franchise is also famous for its Easter eggs, not the chocolate ones, but uh, the movie concept of Easter eggs. Has anyone heard of the movie concept of Easter eggs? Anyone? So a few of you. So, so for those of you who don't know, uh, a movie Easter egg is a little hint or, or clue or image that is almost hidden. It's not front and center. It's, it's, it's there, but it's not there. And it points to something else. So it's called Easter eggs, and uh, my oldest daughter, Kate, she loves Easter eggs. She'll call me, Dad, I found another one. Loves this idea of Easter eggs, and, and uh, the Indiana Jones franchise is actually famous for its Easter eggs. So let me show, give you two examples. Uh, for example, in the Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, when Indy is in, in a pyramid, there are hieroglyphic, hieroglyphics in the background. And one of them is R2-D2, and <laughs> do, do you see it? Do you see it? Just hidden, soft, not, not loud, just there. A, a nod, a nod to some other story. Then uh, in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, the characters drive around the corner, and they, for a moment, drive past a, a, a bar called Club Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan Kenobi, uh, an Easter egg, a nod to another series, another franchise. What does this have to do with Melchizedek? Well, Melchizedek is an Easter egg. He appears through Scripture. Sometimes we, we see him and other times we don't. But he's, a, he, he's an Easter egg that points to Jesus. So, 
If we are going to decode these mysteries, it's time to press play on the Indiana Jones and the Order of Melchizedek movie. Thank you, Cam. It's the opening scene over a black screen. The, uh, the following words appear. It is sometime between 1921 and 1896 BC. And in the valley of Sidon, the people of earth are about to experience their first world war. After a few moments, the, the words are replaced with an ancient map. And the narrator reads, The most powerful king in the world is Kedorlamur, king of Elam. His vassal territory includes five small kingdoms, Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Zoar. The local monarchs of these kingdoms are servants to the Elamite king and pay him regular tribute. In the 13th year of their oppression, the five valley kings rebel against their Elamite oppressor. In response, Kedorlaomer forms a coalition with three other regional powers, and together they march on the Jordan Valley, determined to beat the rebels into submission. Unsurprisingly, the five valley kings are defeated, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah flee but get bogged down in the slumpets that filled the valley. The victorious Kedorlamer pillages Sodom and Gomorrah and departs with an abundance of good and captives. Among these captives is Abram's nephew Lot. When Abram hears the news of Lot's capture, he immediately leaps into action, moving swiftly with a small force of only 318 men Abram soon catches up with the massive foreign armies. Under cover of darkness, Abram and his soldiers attack Kedorlaomer's forces using guerrilla warfare tactics. And in an epic David and Goliath battle, Abram and his smaller army are completely victorious. They destroy Kedorlaomer's forces and recover all of the stolen goods and free all of those taken captive. Scene two, we move to Indiana Jones in his study. This is a legit Indiana Jones hat, I'm not kidding. Indiana Jones is reading from Genesis 14, trying to decode the clues. Indiana Jones reads, After Abraham returned from defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. So what are the mysteries in this passage? What's intriguing about this passage? Well, there's a number of intriguing things about this passage. Firstly, the narrative is actually really clumsy. Just think about it. We hear about the First World War. We hear about the kings. We hear about the battle. We hear about Abram's response, and then a man called Melchizedek pops onto the scene and then pops off as quickly as he came on, and then the story continues. This is just, it's strange. It's, it's, it's not a, a good narrative. Just think of the overall picture. They put four powerful kings, and I'm going to read their names because it's important. The four powerful kings are Amraphel, Ariok, Kedolomer, and Tidal. The smaller kings are Bera, Bersha, Shinab, Shemabir, and Zoar. Now I'm reading those names because there's another name in the story that, that 
that, that makes no sense. There's another name that's not a part of the story. He's not a part of the, the battle. Uh, he's, he's not involved in, in any way. But, but suddenly, he pops onto the scene. He doesn't help Abram. He's not a minor character. He's not mentioned in the history of the battle or, or the aftermath. But there he is. And then he's gone. In fact, if you read the passage without the section uh, about um, Melchizedek, the passage makes more sense. So I'll read it. I'll, I'll take out the section on Melchizedek. And then we read, After Abram returned from uh, defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. And so we have this character that just appears and then disappears. Not only that, we're told that he's king of Salem. Uh, where is Salem? Truth is, we don't really know. There are a number of options. The most common school of thought is that Salem was uh, the original um, uh, town of, of, of Jerusalem. The ancient songwriter Asaph sings, God is renowned in Judah. In Israel, his name is great. His tent is in Salem. His dwelling place in Zion. Problem with this is Asaph wrote this a full uh, 1,000 years after the events of Melchizedek. Another option is from Moses, who, talking about Jacob, says, And Jacob came to Shalem, another spelling of uh, Salem, a city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. And the disciple John gives us a third alternative when he describes where John the Baptist was baptizing. He, John writes, the disciple John writes now, Now John was also baptizing at Anon near Salem, because there was plenty of water. We don't know exactly where Salem was, but we do know that its root word and the word mean peace. And that's very important. It means peace. Thirdly, we're told that Melchizedek is a priest of God Most High. And yet we run into two problems. And the first and most obvious problem is that there was no priesthood associated with God Most High. It would be five generations, 500 years, before a priesthood was instituted for the worship of God Most High. And so we have this character who arrives and we're told he's a priest of God Most High when there weren't priests of God Most High. So that's the first problem we, we have. And, and the second is that at the time... The area that Melchizedek came from was intensely polytheistic. They had this idea of four levels of gods, and there were 55 gods on these four levels. And so it's highly irregular to hear of a priest worshipping God most high. The fourth mystery, which will become very, very important later on, is this. We are told that Abram gives this mysterious man Melchizedek a tenth of everything. Think about how strange this is. Think about how bizarre this is. We have this man Melchizedek who is not involved in the battle in any way, shape, or form. He provides no assistance. Uh, he doesn't provide armies. He doesn't fight himself. Zero impact or assistance on this, what is really the world, first world war. And then he appears after Abram has done all the hard work. Abram has chased down the uh, four powerful kings. He's defeated them with a small army. He's taken everything back. And then Melchizedek arrives on the scene and Abram says, he has a tenth of everything that I have that I've captured. Do you understand how bizarre that is? But it's very important. It's going to become very, very important a little bit later on as we 
moved on the story. We move to scene three. It's the year 980 BC. And King David is in his private chambers. And he's writing a psalm. And David has written many psalms up to this point. He's written psalms of victory. He's written psalms of lament. He's penned psalms of praise, psalms of worship. He's written psalms flowing from his depression. He's written psalms flowing out of anguish. But what makes this psalm so different and so important is that shortly after writing it, this psalm, Psalm 110, will become the most important psalm to the Jewish people. To the Jewish people from the day David penned Psalm 110, this becomes the most significant psalm in all of the psalms. And so here we have 980 BC listening intently to the voice of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, King David pens Psalm 110. Scene four, we return to Indiana Jones' study, where he's reading Psalm 110 and while trying to decipher the clues within the passage. Indiana Jones reads, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in splendor. Your young men will come to you like a dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. So what stands out in this, 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 this poem, this, this, this song, this uh, this? Psalm that is going to become so important to the Jewish people. What stands out is a line that at the time makes no sense. And it's this line. David, filled with the Holy Spirit, listening to the voice of God, writes about the coming Messiah, that he will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And the reason this stands out is because for a man to be a priest, he needed two things. Firstly, he needed to be a descendant of the tribe of Levi. No other tribe, but the tribe of Levi. If you wanted to be a priest, you needed to be from the tribe of Levi, you needed to have the right genes, almost a, a, a lack of birth. You needed to have the right genealogy, the right history, the right ancestors. So that was the first thing a, a man needed to be a, a priest, was he needed to be from the tribe of Levi. The second thing was he needed to be able to prove it. He couldn't come and say, yeah, my great-grand sister married a Levi, so I'm a Levi twice removed through my aunt's cousin. He had to be able to show the genealogy. If you couldn't, you were, you were, you were, you were titled unclean. So we, we see this in, in Ezra. Ezra is talking about the priests and the genealogy of some of them. And, and Ezra writes, And from among the priests, the descendants of uh, Hobiah, a Hakoz and a Barzillai, a man who had married a daughter of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by that name. 
These searched for their family records, but they could not find them. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. And so David's prophecy at the time, you are a priest in the order of Melchizedek, makes no sense. No sense. Why not? You are a priest forever in the tribe of Levi. You're a priest according to the order of the Levites. Why not that? Why Melchizedek when at the time this makes no sense? Well, the reason is David doesn't know what is to come. But the Holy Spirit does. And then suddenly, suddenly the name Melchizedek disappears off of the pages of Scripture for another 1,040 years. Not mentioned again. Only to be mentioned one last time in the book of Hebrews. Or is it? Is it? Seen far enough. We return to Indiana Jones' study where he's reading Hebrews 7, and he's trying to decode, the, uh, decipher the clues in this passage. Indiana Jones reads, This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abram returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem, which means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So what stands out in this little passage? So many things. There's so much mystery in this passage. I, I want to encourage you to read Hebrews uh, 6, 7, and 8. And it'll take you a few days to actually just Find the thread of what's going on. There is tremendous mystery and intrigue. And there are a couple. So firstly, the author of Hebrews, in his summary of Genesis 14, reminds us that this mysterious man, Melchizedek, was both a priest and a king. And here's the big problem. The Jewish people, you could not be a priest and a king. You could not be a priest and a king. You could be a priest from the tribe of Levi, or you could be a king from one of the remaining tribes. You could be a priest, or you could be a king, but you could not be both. And so this statement he was a priest and a king, would have been offensive. It was offensive and sinful and an abomination to try be both king and priest. And there are two kings who try. And the first one is Saul. And when he tries to fulfill the role of a priest, he loses the, the, the kingdom. And then later we read of another king, King Uzziah. And he starts off as a, as a really good king. But then he decides being king is not enough. He wants to be king and priest. And so he marches into the temple with the priest begging him not to go in. And so we read in 2 Chronicles. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Azariah the priest with other 80 courageous priests of the Lord followed him, followed him in. They confronted King Uzziah and said, It is not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful. You will not be honored by the Lord God. Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand, started uh, ready to burn incense, became angry. While he was raging at the priests in their presence, uh, before the incense altar in the uh, temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. And we're told that King Uzziah leaves the temple. He spends the rest of his days 
living outside of the, 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 the palace because he had leprosy. And then we're told that when he, when he died, they didn't even bury him with his ancestors. This idea that it was so offensive that he was a king who tried to be a priest. This next passage in uh, uh, Hebrews 7 is probably the most mysterious passage in all of uh, the New Testament. And I think, it's, I think it's mysterious on purpose. Because we're dealing with this mysterious man, uh, Melchizedek, I believe that Hebrews 7, the, the author of Hebrews, uh, led by the Holy Spirit, wrote this passage in a way that is mysterious. And the, 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 it's mysterious in invisible and visible ways. And there are invisible aspects that, that make this passage mysterious. In the study of linguistics, there's a concept called hapax legomenon. Hapax legomenon. And what a hapax legomenon is, is a, a, an author uses a word in the writings only once and never again in any of his other writings. And most often, that word is not found anywhere else. And so we have a, we have a, a couple of examples. In, in Hamlet, remember the story of Hamlet? Hamlet's father is sleeping under the tree, and the assassins come and they pour a poison in his ear. We're told the poison uh, is Hebanon. That word occurs nowhere else. Nowhere in botany, no other stories, no other historians. It's a hapax legomena. It just, it's one of a kind. And I'll tell you this because in uh, Hebrews 7, there are 14 words that are hapax legomena. Words that we find nowhere else. And four of them are in verse 3 alone. And so we have this, this passage referring to Melchizedek that is a mystery. We barely understand the words, uh, the ancient Greek words that make up the sentence. And then there are the visible mysteries. Melchizedek is described as without mother or without father, without genealogy, without Beginning of days or end of life? Wait. Did he not have a father? Did he not have a mother? Did he, did, he, did he not have a beginning or an end? Well, the answer is yes, he did. He did. He was a man. Melchizedek was a man. But his birth and death, his genealogy, his history is deliberately mystic, mystical and, uh, and unknown. Because we want, the author of Hebrews wants to tell us this image of this king priest who had no beginning and no end, no genealogy, this mystical figure. And that's important because Indiana Jones is about to Start putting the threads together. Because who else always existed and will always exist? Who else is outside of time and space? Jesus himself. So, scene six, Indiana Jones starts pulling the threads together and he compares Jesus and Melchizedek side by side. And so Melchizedek is king of Salem, while Jesus is king of kings. And Jesus, uh, Melchizedek is king of righteousness or king of peace. So is Jesus. Melchizedek is the priest of the God Most High. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is superior to Adam above. Uh, sorry, to Abram above Abram. And Jesus is superior to Abram and Melchizedek. Melchizedek blesses Abram. Jesus blesses all believers. Melchizedek has no beginning or end. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Melchizedek is the priest forever. Jesus is the ultimate priest forever. Melchizedek is like the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Melchizedek 
is this mystical image in the Old Testament because he's meant to portray this ultimate image of what a priest looks like. Why is it mystical? Because if you look at any of the other priests, the more we know about them, the less honorable and spiritual and godly and righteous they are. And so we know little about Melchizedek because he's meant to be this image of of the ultimate high priest. And Jesus is then the ultimate high priest in the New Testament. The author of Hebrews at the end of chapter 6 writes this. Jesus is the ultimate. uh, Sorry, this hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's sanctuary. And Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Let me wrap this up because it leaves us with still two problems. And the first is that to be a priest, you needed to be a Levite. So here we have Jesus, the ultimate high priest, like Melchizedek, who had no lineage, no family tree. So how is it that Melchizedek could be superior to the Levites? Remember that statement that I said right at the beginning was going to become very, very, very important. That statement that said, and Abram gave a tithe of everything to Melchizedek. Now we see how important that is. When the priesthood is eventually established 500 years later, the priests receive a tithe, 10%, from all of the other tribes. Whatever the other tribes make, whatever they earn, whatever they have, a tithe goes to the priests. And so the symbology here is that Abram, when he's giving a tithe to Melchizedek, he's setting the very first uh, image of giving a priest a tithe. And in doing so, he shows his respect to Melchizedek. But, But in doing this, he also indicates that he sees Melchizedek as a priest. He sees him as a priest. Because he does what other people would do to priests later. And yet comes the twist in the tale. And this is so important. Abram is the father of the Jewish nation. Every single Israelite to this day can trace their lineage back to Abram. Every single Jewish person. By giving 10% to Melchizedek, Abram is acknowledging and showing that he is a priest. And he does this by submitting to him. And because he is the father of the Jewish nation, and because all the other Jews would eventually be able to trace themselves right back to Abram, What's essentially happening is the priests of Levi who have not been born but are are in imagery are inside Abram. And when Abram submits himself to Melchizedek as a priest, what's actually happening is the tribe of Levi are submitting themselves to Melchizedek as the ultimate priest. And it's exactly what the book of Hebrews goes on to say, the author writes this, Consider then how great this Melchizedek was. Even Abram, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. Now the law of Moses required that the priests who are descendants of Levi must collect a tithe from the rest of the people of Israel, who are also descendants of Abraham. But Melchizedek, who was not a descendant of Levi, collected a tenth from Abraham. And Melchizedek placed a blessing upon Abraham, the one who had already received the promises of God. And without a question, the person who has the power to give a blessing is greater than the one who is blessed. In addition, we might even say that these Levites, the ones who collect the tithe, paid a tithe to Melchizedek when their ancestor Abraham paid a tithe to him. For although Levi wasn't born yet, 
The seed from which he came was in Abraham's body when Melchizedek collected the tithe from him. And so because Abram gives this tithe, there's this image that all other priests are actually inferior to the priest Melchizedek. But here's the second problem. Priests come and go. Priests come and go. Every single priest in the history of Israel has two things in common. Every single priest from the first to the last have two things in common. The first is they were born and the second is they died. They were and then they were not. They were born and then they died. And what we need is a priest who will never die. A a priest who will live forever. And again, this is something that the book of Hebrews points out. We read that the priests who collect tithes are men who die. So Melchizedek is greater than they are because we are told that he lives on. So if the priesthood of Levi on which the law was based could have achieved the perfection of God that God intended. Why did God need to establish a different priesthood with a priest in the order of Melchizedek instead of the order of Levi and Aaron? This change has been made very clear since a different priest who is like Melchizedek has appeared. Jesus became a priest not by meeting the physical requirements of belonging to the tribe of Levi but by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. And the psalmist pointed this out when he prophesied, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is Melchizedek, this priest who will live forever. But wait, no one can live forever, right? Except God. So how do we discover through the story of Melchizedek that Jesus is our eternal priest who will never die? There are passages in Scripture that just simply and clearly and unambiguously just say that. But this is Melchizedek. This is the mysterious, intriguing man Melchizedek. It just wouldn't be right for it to be made obvious. And so we see how Jesus is God in a far less obvious way. And that is by looking at the thread of Easter eggs through the story of Melchizedek. In Genesis 14, the name Melchizedek appears for the very first time. It is also the very first time that the word priest appears in Scripture. It is also the very first time that the name of God, God Most High, El Elyon, is revealed to us in Scripture. And it's the first illusion to the Messiah. Genesis 14. And then we get to Psalm 110. The second mention of Melchizedek in that psalm that becomes the pinnacle psalm for the Jewish people. See, we don't really get it. For us, we, we, we all have our, our favorite psalms, right? Psalm 23, when we need to be encouraged. Psalm 91, when we're feeling in a spiritual attack. Psalm 150, when we want to praise. We have our favorite psalms. And I, I, I can almost say with certainty... None of us have Psalm 110 as our favorite psalm, but not the rest of Scripture. You see, we then hit the New Testament. In the New Testament, the psalms are are quoted around 100 times. Almost a full quarter of those references come solely from Psalm 110. So while we don't see the name Melchizedek in the New Testament... He's alluded to 24 times, 24 Easter eggs, until we get to Hebrews 7. And then we get to Hebrews 7, and this is what we find. We find the very last mention of the name Melchizedek. We also find the very last mention of the word high priest. We also find the very last mention 
of the name of God, God Most High, El Elyon. Why? Because from that moment, Jesus is El Elyon, God Most High. And because he is El Elyon, God Most High, he is the priest that gives us righteousness, makes us right with God, and he's the ultimate priest that brings us peace between ourselves and God and ourselves and others. Melchizedek is a, he's a strange character. And because he's strange and because he's hidden like Easter eggs throughout Scripture, we're at danger of missing how important he is. We're at danger of seeing just what he tells us about Jesus. It is through the mysterious and intriguing, mystical Melchizedek that we learn that Jesus is our ultimate priest. He's our ultimate king. And he's none other than El Elyon, God Most High. That's what Melchizedek does for us. Father, we just, we, we thank you for the mystery that you, that you, that you put in your, in, your, in your scriptures. We thank you for the intrigue, uh, the, the perplexing character, uh, Melchizedek, a character that helps us see just who you are, Jesus, the ultimate priest, the priest of Righteousness, the priest of peace, and no one other than El Elyon, God Most High. And so, Father, we thank you for the strange character Melchizedek. And we thank you for what he reveals about you. We thank you for that. And may we be led to worship you because of what we see from Melchizedek. In Jesus' name, amen.